0: Carrie Ann and all our preschool teachers, children, 6th grade and below, you're dismissed to go downstairs to your time of study. Well, welcome everyone. Glad that you're here. Take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I'd like to especially welcome um, six freshmen from UAB. Uh, Six freshmen who are part of the baseball team at UAB under Coach Brian Shoup. So welcome them this morning, the new baseball players at uh, UAB. We're going to all get there. Eventually. We live in a world where people are struggling with the aspect of what is truth. We see everything from religious extremism at work in our world today to um, total apathy about anything that may have to do with religion to even antagonism toward religious thought and ideas. In the book of Hebrews... We see a people who have known the Lord for a period of time. They were originally Jewish, but they became Christians. But what they've realized is that the Christian life is not quite as easy as they thought it was. They feel like this religion that they're now a part of has some challenges because it's not like their old religion. In their old religion, they knew what the rules were, so to speak. Now, they didn't follow them very well, but they knew what they were and so they could go to a temple or synagogue or make sacrifice or obey these rules and according to their old religion they were therefore right with god now they have this new thing that's really not a religion it's about a relationship with a person jesus christ and they're just not sure if they're winning or losing they're under a great deal of persecution they're facing problems difficulties challenges so as a result, some within this Hebrew church are thinking about returning to Judaism. Some are thinking about just quitting and being apathetic. Some don't know what to do, but they're just they're struggling. So the author of the book of Hebrews is writing to this group to say, look, there's nothing to go back to. Jesus, this one that you've come to, is greater than everything that happened before. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the law. He's greater than... Jesus is greater than anything. There's nowhere to move except down. You don't move up when you move away from Jesus because Jesus is everything. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 verse 2, Excuse me, Hebrews 1 verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In these last days, which by the way we're living in, uh, the last days began when Jesus came and will end when he returns. In these last days, God's fullest and final revelation of himself is his Son, Jesus Christ. And he could reveal himself in the Son because the Son is exactly like the Father. One of the mysterious truths of our Christian faith is this, that that God became a man. God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God the Son, who is God, became a man. And so what the author of Hebrews shows in chapter 1 is that Jesus Jesus is fully divine. He's fully God. He's the exact representation of God's being. He's the one through whom the worlds were created. He's the, he's the one through whom everything is sustained. He is God. And in chapter 1, he told us that Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than because he's the son. He's the one through whom everything will be inherit. He'll inherit all things. He is Fully, fully God. Several years ago, uh, in the year 2007, there was a debate in our city between Richard Dawkins, who is one of the leading atheistic proponents in the world. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. Uh, He's not just an atheist who believes that um, hey, look, whatever you want to believe is fine. Personally, I don't believe in God, but whatever you want to believe is fine. He, he is an um, he is a evangelistic atheist, in other words. He's trying to convert people to atheism, which is, by the way, ironic because evangelism means good news and atheism is not good news. But he is uh, actively pursuing, trying to convince people that atheism is the right way to go because he believes that all religion in the world is bad, and he would use a case like ISIS this past week and extremism in the world to make his case that all religion is bad. Anyway, in his book, The God Delusion, he continues this idea about atheism, and there was this debate, which our city had the remarkable privilege of holding, between Richard Dawkins, who's a geneticist, and um, John Lennox, who is also a, a scientist, but he is a Christian. He's a devout follower of Jesus Christ. In the debate, in actually the closing argument of the b- debate, Dawkins says this. Lennox has said something, and now Dawkins, it, it, the grammar and it's not perfect because I've, I've transcribed it as he said it, but here's what he says, basically. That concluding, it kind of gives the game away, doesn't it? All that stuff about science and physics. What it really comes down to is the resurrection of Jesus. Now this is remarkable to me. That he actually realizes that it all comes down to the resurrection of Jesus. Which is actually a true statement. And there is a fundamental incompatibility between the sort of sophisticated science. Which we hear part of the time from John Lennox and it is impressive, and we are interested in the argument. So he's giving Linux his due, so to speak, saying, hey, Linux is a very smart guy. His argument is very good. It all comes down to the resurrection of Jesus, but there's something in his mind that's incompatible between Linux argument, the resurrection, and here's what follows that I want you to see. And then having presented some sort of a case for the existence of God, arguments from physics, and it's all very grand and wonderful. Listen to this. And then suddenly, we come down to the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what he says. It is so petty. It is so trivial. It is so local. It is so earthbound. It is so unworthy of the universe. His argument is this. Why would God come to be a man why would you make the argument and think it's great that God would come to be a man not only that but to put him in Palestine to put him in this provincial trivial earthbound existence and to claim that that guy is God and that he went to the cross and died is so pedantic from his to him that kills the argument I would say this, it is what makes the argument glorious and majestic is that God, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, becomes a man and fulfills every prophetic word given to him about himself in the Old Testament, fulfills every single one. Why Jesus becoming a man? who is fully human, matters. That's what the author of Hebrews takes up next. In chapter 1, he argues, Jesus is fully God. Which we would say, well, that's, that's great. Jesus is fully God. But what he argues in chapter 2 is, he is fully, also fully man. He's already said Jesus was made greater than the angels. Now he's going to say Jesus was made a little lower than the angels and attributes that to the humanity of Jesus Christ. It matters that Jesus was fully human because it impacts the way we live our lives. If Jesus was not fully human, then he has an advantage that none of us will ever have, and it means that, that we can't really, really, really have a relationship with God. If indeed Jesus is greater than anything else, then the difficulty of our lives can be dealt with if in fact Jesus was fully human. So let's look at these points from Hebrews 2. uh, Beginning with the first one, which is this. Jesus is the leader who guides us. Jesus is the leader who guides us. Here we are in Hebrews 2, verses 5 and following. Here's what the author says. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under his feet, Excuse me. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at the present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death so that by his grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All right, look up here. Let me see if I can help us weave through this a little bit. The author of Hebrews is saying this. He's already said Jesus is greater than the angels. Now he's going to say he was a little lower than the angels, but now he's made greater than the angels again. And here's what he's saying. He's quoting from Psalm 8. Remember last week, if you were here, he quoted from the Psalms and different Old Testament passages to show how Jesus was greater than the angels. Now he's quoting from Psalm 8, where he says a familiar passage that all his Hebrew readers will understand, a passage that is about humanity, about us, about the way we were created, where he says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. That was originally written about humanity, about us. DeVern Frompke in his book called Ultimate Intention, says, and we had the privilege several years ago of hearing from um, Dr. Frommke here at Fullness. DeVern Frommke, in his book Ultimate Intention, says, it was God's original purpose that man would be created to have relationship with God and to rule and reign over all creation. That's God's ultimate intention. That's what God's purpose was for creating man we're made a little lower than the angels but we are to rule and reign over everything on the earth by the way including the angels the author of hebrews flips this just a little bit he he flips it to say listen jesus jesus was made a little lower than the angels he came but in actuality he came to restore god's purpose and plan To restore God's ultimate intention back to mankind. Because if we look around, we can say, you know, we're not doing too good at this ruling and reigning thing. We don't have a relationship with God. Why? Because when sin enters the world in Genesis 3, everything gets broken. But Jesus came to restore back God's purpose and plan. In Hebrews 2 verse 10, he goes on and says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Let's see if the Spirit of God will help me get this communicated right. Jesus' purpose in coming was to bring sons and daughters back to God. He was made lower than the angels. He was made fully human, not just so that he would receive majesty and glory, but that he would be the door through which he could lead, bring sons and daughters back to glory of God. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. A number of years ago, my dad, I was in my mid-20s, so it's a number of years ago Uh, now. Back in my mid-20s, my dad had bought this property down on the St. John's River, which is about an hour below Jacksonville, Florida. He bought the property years before, like when I was 10 or 11 or 12, but he never had done anything to it. So when I'm in my mid-20s, he says to me and my brother, hey, let's go. We want to go clear the property that um, I bought so that I can do something with it. He was going to put a mobile home on it, which he eventually did. That's where he lives now. So we go out, and I had not been to this property since I was like 10 or 12. Now I'm in my mid-20s. We start driving, and uh, the paved road ends. It becomes a dirt road. It becomes like ruts in the road. We turn off the rutted dirt road into some pasture kind of thing, and we're driving along till we could not drive any further, and we get out of the... It was my uncle's truck. We get out of the truck, and he goes, all right, let's start clearing. And I'm like, Dad, where's the property? Well, we're going to have to clear away to the property. And I'm like, Dad, where's the river? I can't even see the river. This place is so grown up. Now, the river is not like uh, the Cahaba. You know, it's not like this stream that kind of swells when it rains. The river where my dad lives is two and a half miles wide at that point. So it looks more like a lake, and you can see nothing but undergrowth. My brother and I and my dad spent all day clearing a path to just get to the property. We worked, I mean, and it was the middle of the summer in Florida. There was no breeze, 120% humidity. Um, I mean, really, we didn't have enough water, fluids. I I thought, really, I'm going to die right here. This is the end of my life. Is going to be right here trying to clear a path to this stinking property. Listen, the, the, the path from where we are to where God is is so thick with sin and death and everything else that we have no, now listen to me, no ability to clear the way. But Jesus came from heaven to earth as a man, in order to both clear the path for us and to lead us to a place where we could have relationship with God. This passage makes it clear that it's because of Jesus' humanity that our destiny could be achieved, that who we are, who we were created to be, could be found in him. What was it that he cleared, by the way? What was it that he cleared? Down in verses 14 and 15, I want to skip ahead. Just a little bit down in verses 14 and 15, the author of Hebrews says this Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. And then he answers, Who is it that holds the power of death? That is who? The devil. And free those who all lived their lives, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. When man sinned, death entered the world. And the devil, who was never meant to have power in this world, suddenly has the power of the fear of death. That fear of death is something that every single one of us has to deal with. All of us deal with the fear of death. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian writer who wrote War and Peace and many other works, wrote a, wrote a book called Confessions, where he talks about his life and his struggles and um, his place. And he says this in his book, Confessions. I was not yet 50. I had a good wife who loved me and whom I loved, good children and a large estate, which without much effort on my part improved and increased. I was respected by my relations and acquaintances more than at any previous time. I was praised by others, and without much self-deception could consider that my name was famous. Well, he was famous. He was not very humble, but he was famous. And far from being insane or mentally diseased, I enjoyed, on the contrary, a strength of mind and body such as I have seldom met with among men of my kind. He just... He's, he's not puffing himself up. He's just saying, here's, here's where I was. I was famous. I was rich. I was healthy. I had a good relationship. Uh, I had a wife. Everything was going good for me. Physically, I could keep up with the peasants at mowing, and mentally, I could work for eight hours and ten hours at a stretch without experiencing any ill results from such exertion. And in this situation, I came to this, that I could not live and fearing death had to employ cunning with myself to avoid taking my own life. We talked about Robin Williams last week, just briefly. I'm not going to go into it, but you can be famous, you can be rich, you can be loved, you can, be, you can have everything and still get to the place of death overwhelming us. The only thing that kept Tolstoy from taking his own life was the fear of death. The fear of death, he goes on to say, just overwhelmed him. It really became the point of his hopelessness. Now, think about this. His hopelessness was this. He so feared death, he was afraid to die, but he wanted to die because he was so afraid of death. Is that not a trap that we're caught in? Or any other trap of hopelessness that the enemy leads us to? Look, the enemy... The enemy leads us to death. Jesus is here to lead us to life. He's cleared the way. He's leading the way. He's making the way in order for us to come come to God. Second point is this. Jesus is the brother who loves us. Jesus is not just our leader. He is also a brother. Hebrews 2, verses 10 and following says, In bringing many sons to glory... It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of what? Hello? <clears throat> the same family. I don't even know what that was. Uh, are of the same family. Those who The one who makes men holy, who is that? Hello, you can talk to me. I want to make sure you're awake. I think I'm losing some of you. That's Jesus. And those who are made holy, that's us, we are of the same family. Listen, it's one thing to have a person who leads you. It's another thing to have that person who leads you be your brother. Do you understand the difference? You know, we get this attitude. I'm not sure we're good. Um, It's one thing to have um, a leader who's out there in front of us, who's kind of showing us the way. But when that leader is our brother, we have a whole different thought and relationship with that person than someone who's just a leader. goes on and says, So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children of children God has given me. Again, he's quoting from the Old Testament, Psalm 62, the book of Isaiah, to say, when I lead these people out, bringing sons, not just sons of God, but these are brothers, these are families. This should cause us to get somewhat excited that Jesus who saves us not only keeps us from going to hell, not only frees us from the power of death, but he is also the one who brings us to God in such a way that God is now our father and Jesus is our brother. Paul echoes this thought in Romans 8 when he says For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Here's that thought about fear again. But you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And Abba is a very personal, very intimate. It's like saying, Daddy, Dad. You can call God, Abba, Daddy, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We should be excited about this, that we are really a part of the family of God. Now, I, I have to confess, I think most of us really don't get this internally. We may think about it, that yes, I'm a part, of, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You remember that old chorus he's sings? But in our hearts, we're not sure that we really believe that we're a part of the family of God. Listen, I, I love my family. I love my dad and my mom when she was on this earth. I love uh, my brother and my sister. I love my children, my wife. I love my family. I would do anything for my family. This past week, I took one of my sons um, up to Virginia for an interview. So I left Thursday, drove into Atlanta, dropped a car, drove from Atlanta to Virginia, back to Atlanta, back home. Did I do this because I am such a great guy? Well, I am a great guy, but uh, that's, <laughs> I, I did this because I, I love my son. And I want to see God's purpose and destiny for his life achieved. And anything I can do to help that, I, I, I want to do that how much more does God love us than my pathetic attempts at being a father could possibly? But do we really get that? Do we really get the truth that we have the creator of the universe that we can call Abba, Father, and Jesus, the one who redeems us, and gives us life and leads us into life we can call him brother one of the greatest shortfalls i would say of people that i counsel with is is the belief that they are really really loved i mean really if they if they could ever get their Faith factor to rise above their fear factor to understand that they are a part of the family of God. I would say 90 something percent, I'm making up numbers, but a large part of their issues would be settled to understand how much we are really loved. In addition, I would say that if we understand how much we're really loved and loved back then our our obedience problem would also be partially taken care of. In other words, I, I, I have to confess this. Many times in my high school life, I acted right. Not because I knew I was supposed to be acting right, but because I loved my parents so much that I didn't want to do anything to hurt them. I mean, think about this. If, if all, the only thing that's restraining me from acting right is kind of fear, then the more I push the boundaries and realize, oh, you know, nothing really happened. I didn't die. I didn't, you know, fall off the face of the planet. God didn't strike me with lightning. Things didn't happen. You just kind of push it more and more. But if love is the the restraining factor of my life, then I'm like, I don't want to do anything to bring shame to the name of my parents. I would contend a lot of our issues have to do with our understanding of the love of God. How much he loves us and how much we love him back. In addition, when my children stumble and fall, which... They on occasion have. I mean, I know they look perfect uh, sitting there on the front row, but we've had issues in our lives. And when they stumble and fall, I love them so much that my first response is not, you're out of here. Right? I want to see them overcome. I want to see them battle through. I want to be with them to battle through. Jesus is really a brother who loves us. If you don't hear anything else I say today, understand this, that the humanity of Jesus allows him to be your brother. If he wasn't fully human, then he would not be the brother that we're looking for because we can't be brothers. He's something different than a man. Third point is this, and this is one we're going to look at a lot more in the future, so I'm going to kind of move through it quickly, it's this. Jesus is the high priest who helps us. Jesus is the high priest who helps us. Verses 14 through 18. says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Listen, could the author of Hebrews be any more clear about the fact that Jesus was fully human? In their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, free those "...who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for their sins, for the sins of the people." Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is a high priest. Now, by the way, uh, the reason we're going to look at this more and more is because over in the uh, the succeeding chapters, uh, it's going to talk about the sonship of Jesus and his high priesthood. This is the first place in the book of Hebrews where we have Jesus listed as a high priest. Besides that, only in the book of Hebrews is Jesus called a high priest. So it's a consistent theme through the book, but it is only in this book that Jesus is listed as a high priest. Very quickly, here's what a priest does, a high priest. A high priest mediates between two parties. Uh, Any person who's a mediator is standing between two parties, helping them resolve conflict. Jesus is a priest who stands between God and us. Before Jesus came, we were at war with God. It says in the book of Romans that we are at enmity with God, war with God. Now, most of us, we're so clueless. We didn't even know we were at war with God, but we're at war with God because we have sin in our lives, and so Jesus comes to stand between us and God. God, because he's holy, us, because we're sinful, he came to do what we couldn't do. He came to, this is the second point, make atonement for our sins. So Jesus, it says, is a high priest who comes to atone for our sins. By the way, the word atone here is not the exact word. The word that's listed um, in the Greek is the word propitiation. Now, we don't use the word. Uh, NIV transfer, uh, translates it atonement because I mean, who goes around saying propitiation? I mean, most of us, we don't even say atonement, but we at least, something about it rings with us, but propitiation is so far out there. In other words, God, God, who we're at war with, his anger is turned towards sin. And so something had to take place where God's anger or wrath towards something unholy, us, is taken care of. Jesus came. To take away, and I know it sounds kind of like, oh, we got an angry God up there. we got a mad God. It sounds so ungodlike for God who is loved to be an angry God. But what he's saying is God's wrath, God hates sin so much that his wrath is turned towards sin. And Jesus came to make propitiation, turn away the wrath and anger of God. To make atonement for our sins. This is what Paul says in the book of Romans. Where he says. Being justified as a gift by his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in, his forbearance, in the forbearance of God. He passed over the sins previously committed. Again. This is a very rich passage theologically, but what he's saying is this, Paul is saying here in Romans, is that all the sins that people committed beforehand, they weren't taken care of when the priest went in and sacrificed the lamb. They were just kind of put on the back shelf. They were just waiting for someone to come pay the price or penalty for all those sins. God's wrath was still against those sins but it was in it was held in forbearance so to speak. It was held at bay, waiting for that to be taken care of. Jesus when he came and gave his life on the cross, sacrificed his life, he took care of all the sins past, present and future. He did and paid what we couldn't. He atoned for our sins. He took care of our sins so that this anger of God, wrath of God towards sin is no longer there. And that we can, in fact, come into God's presence. So the things that he says in this passage is that he is a merciful and faithful high priest who mediates. He's merciful toward us, faithful toward God. He atones for our sins. And finally, he helps us. He helps us. He was tempted in every way that we're tempted. Now, he didn't fall into sin, but he was tempted in every way. In case you got lost along the way of this conversation, I'm talking about why Jesus being fully man is important. It's fully important because... We have a high priest who understands us. He can mediate between us and God. He became man so that he could pay the price for our sins. He became a man so that when we need help, he can help us. Because he's been through everything we've been through. In my role as pastor... Over the many years that I've been pastor of fullness, I've been called on many times to go and help families that are going through grief, who have lost a loved one, who have suffered loss in some way. But several years ago, after my mother passed away, when I was going into those situations, I now had a whole different perspective than I did before my mom passed away. Why is that? Well, because before, I could go in and I I knew the truth about death and helping people and comfort and the person of the Holy Spirit, but I had never experienced the loss of someone really close to me personally. But once that happened, now I went in with a whole different empathy and understanding than I had before. Listen, if Jesus was not a man and hadn't come as a man, he wouldn't be able to help us because he really hadn't really, wouldn't have been through what we've been through. But because he has, he can guide us. This is what makes Christianity different than every other religion on the face of the planet. We, we have a Savior who was fully God and at the same time fully man. Who went to die for our sins. Took the wrath of God upon himself. Paid a price that we couldn't pay. Cleared the path that we couldn't clear and is leading us into our ultimate destiny, God's intention for all of us, to have relationship with him and to rule and reign eventually. And not only that, but he, but he loves us and we're brothers and sisters of his. And we have one right now who's standing between us and God, mediating on our behalf, Loving us and helping us. The humanity of Christ is not just some theological concept out there. It is a reality in our lives. It is not, as Dawkins contends, petty or trivial or earthbound or unworthy of the universe. Rather, it is the beautiful, mysterious plan of God enacted on your behalf. We have a leader who clears the path. We have a brother who loves us. We have a high priest who mediates and atones and helps us. What a mighty Savior we have. Lord, we thank you today. And we pray that you would be reality in all of our lives today. Jesus, we thank you for leaving heaven and coming to earth and being made fully human, fully man. May may we really understand this truth in our lives. May it become a reality for each and every one of us. Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know this Jesus as the one who rules their life, and forgives their sins. I pray that, Spirit of God, you would draw them today to the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you, we bless you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, we are going to transition, and as you prepare...